0: Japan by River Cruise is made possible thanks to those who donate to the show at japanbyrivercruise.com and due to the generosity of our corporate sponsors. This show is brought to you by the Japanese Language Proficiency Test. Hello there, JBRC listeners. Many of you have likely just completed your most recent Japanese
1: Language Proficiency Test attempt, and you might be feeling a little bummed about how it went. Just in case you are, don't forget the Japanese proverb, fall down seven times and get up eight. Or as they say it in the original Japanese, And I know it might feel like you've been at it for years, but here's another helpful saying. Sitting on a stone for three years might be tough, but it brings change. Or again, in the native tongue. And don't get discouraged by comparing yourself to others. After all, ten people, ten colors. Or as my sensei says, So while you wait for your results, try not to worry too much, because the point of the JLPT isn't to make you feel bad about your relationship with the Japanese language. It's to make you memorize a bunch of complicated and antiquated stuff when really you were doing just fine with the couple hundred phrases you already knew. Hello, Brian, and welcome back to Japan by River Cruise. I'm Bobby Judo. Hello, I'm Ollie Horn. And joining us this time is Joe McReynolds. Joe is a researcher at Keio University studying Tokyo's urban development and is also a national security analyst who's been an advisor on the Clinton and Biden presidential campaigns, as well as on my failed campaign for Hozugawa River Cruise Circus Activities Director. Joe, thank you for joining us. We almost had it. We almost did. It was so close.
2: Thanks so much for having me. Like, it's an absolute pleasure to be on the podcast.
1: Yay! Glad to have you. On this show, our topic is Shiti planning, which is Japanese for city planning, but also English for how Ali and I produce this show. Joe will tell us what makes Tokyo a spontaneous city. I'm guessing it's easier to be spontaneous with all of those Murio Annaijos on the walk home from the
0: pub. Plus, Ali's got your weekly River Cruise recommendation. Ali? Yes, Bobby. This week's recommendation is the Nagoya River Cruise, which promises to beat the inflation-driven increase in ticket prices of all the other operators by pricing their cruises in U.S. dollars instead. And this is the season where we always see that yearly fracturing of the River
1: Cruise provider community into two rival factions, the ones that encourage swimming in the river as a fun cruise activity Colloquially known as the backstroke cruises, and the ones that strictly prohibit getting in the water, known as the heatstroke cruises. We'll talk on air about the origins of this rift, and we'll talk off air about how long of a walk that was to get to a pretty underwhelming joke. But first, Ali and I are going to jump into our little swan boat and have a little soap talk.
0: Bobby Judo. It's been another month. It's been more than a month, technically.
1: Technically, technically. but we, we don't. Technically, s- uh, it's been more than a month, but other than technically,
0: it's um, also technically, been more than we, a month. <laughs> but we will release this as our, as our June episode. Okay. How have you been?
1: Meh. Meh. Okay. So, my wife and I have a, have a joke that's a bilingual joke that um, will refer to something as majime, which majime, mm, that's funny. Yeah, majime in Japanese uh, means diligent or hardworking or earnest or serious. serious. Uh,
0: majime na hito is like a serious guy. But
1: maji means like extremely or very. Maji is like a, is like a, a synonym for tottemo. And so, because it's a bilingual joke, my wife and I will refer to something as "majime" to mean, like, it's extremely
0: meh. So-so. Yeah, yeah nice. Funny. So, w- what have you been describing as maji-so-so? <sighs> Man, I've spent so much money on getting this
1: barbecue shop ready. And it's not yeah. earning any money yet. Yeah. And we're way behind. Uh, and it's... Just like nonstop work every day. And it's interesting because, um, because my wife, uh, she's, she's very, very good at working. This is a weird thing to say in English, but in Japanese, you say like, which means like somebody's yeah. good at shit or they're not. They can handle their shit or yeah. they can't. And she's, get done. she's good. So it gets shit done, not gets get shit done. done. Yeah. She, yeah. Not, That's not obvious. gets shits done. She gets shit yeah. done. Um, She's good at working, and when she was uh, the manager of uh, a jewelry shop, she got shit done. When she was a bridal coordinator, she got shit done. When when anything she's ever done, she's got shit done. Um, Those kids as well, she managed. Yeah, them. she got them done. Um, yeah, they're halfway done. So um, she she's good at at working, but like her experience has never been the same as my experience as somebody in the creative industry. And I don't think she's ever had a sense of, of how when you work in a creative field or you're freelance, you're constantly feeling this pressure to produce. And in the Japanese creative industry, I'm sure it's the same in the West as well, but like, If you propose a hundred projects, if you try to, if you have a hundred irons in the fire, if two of them take, that's good. And I've always kind of had this nonstop running mental catalog of things that I need to get done and things that I'm trying to get off the ground. And it's this constant never ending struggle. And for the first mm. time ever, I think now that she's a part of, um, we've started a company together. Uh, our company is funded primarily by my TV and, and public work. So now that we're doing this together and we're working on this restaurant together, for the first time ever, she's got this sense that like there's this never-ending list of stuff that needs to get done. And up until mm. now, she's always been like a que sera sera type. Like in Japanese, they say naru yoni naru. And anytime mm. I was like struggling with work or worried about work or stressed about where the next paycheck was going to come from or anything like that, she would say, a yoni which means it'll be what it'll it be. It is what it is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like it'll work itself out. And, yes. and that idea of it'll work itself out was always kind of a sticking point for me because it's like, no, it won't work itself out. I have to work it out. Yeah.
0: yeah there's no passive voice here. Right. Naredu.
1: Yeah. And so for the first time ever, I think she's finally got that experience of like, there's so much stuff that you have to get done and the list is never ending and it's not just going to work itself out. I have to work it out. And I'm of two minds because on one hand, it's great that she can finally understand kind of like what I've been doing. For the first time ever, I think I said to her, Naru yoni Naru, and she was like, no, I've got to do it. And I was like, that's <laughs> my life. That's my life. And she was like, I have this list of stuff that's never ending. And I was like, exactly. But at the same time, I feel this overwhelming guilt for like, I feel like if I hadn't initiated this step away from my talent work, then I would be the only one who had to kind of like bear up under that weight Mm. and I wouldn't have shared it with her. And so, on one hand, it's...
0: But it's not, it's not actually, I don't think it's right to say it's sharing it. It's like, I don't think in a, in a company, I don't think adding a third co-founder means that everyone worries less. Mm. You know, it's, 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 not, it's not like she's taking any load off you. It's like you're just, you're just sharing this. No, no,
1: no. It's not like she's taking it off of me, but it's like she's got it for the first time where she never had it before. Right, yeah. And so it's, it's like, almost like something that I've done to her that I feel like I shouldn't have done.
0: Right. Well, I mean, and are you suggesting then that she perhaps didn't know what she was getting herself into in this entrepreneurship journey? No,
1: I don't think so. But I feel like there's an aspect of it that it's like the end goal, the ultimate end goal is that we have more financial freedom and we're less tied to how many hours I can get on TV. Um, yeah. Yeah. And if we can run our shop as owners and leave it to other people to manage, then we have more time to do the things that we want to do. But until we get there, I kind of feel like the barbecue business was my dream. And, and it, it's resulted in this situation where she has to do a lot of work mm. for the sake of my dream, if that makes sense. Yeah.
0: Well, have, have you had a chat to Chuck about this? We have a mutual friend called Chuck who uh, opened up a tiny, tiny uh, bar um, on a yaf called Audi in Fukuoka then later moved to a bigger bar um, after I left Japan. But he, he, he would talk for hours about how, you know, it was his dream to open this bar but without his wife sorting out paperwork and doing, you know, just, just getting shit done, um, you know, it, it, it wouldn't have happened. Yeah.
1: I have never talked to Chuck about anything at length except for the strength of his drinks
0: (laughs) yeah right okay (laughs) yeah fair enough um but yeah but i mean it it seems and just just just,
1: just for clarity's sake it's usually like dude lay off a bit
0: (laughs) (laughs) exactly yeah he's a very generous guy um but yeah it's but what's nice is that like your work in the past has always been like your front and center and I know that when TV crews have come around your house your wife's not been on camera and they've got like a even a stand-in wife occasionally. yeah that kind I've of had thing. a
1: stand-in wife on TV
0: <laughs> yeah but this is like this is yours and hers thing I, I really get the sense that well actually it is your face on the goddamn bottle but I don't know my impression but it's like all her, her. Posts and, yeah her Instagram the, yeah.
1: the social media is all her the design choices are all her She's, yeah. she's working good. so hard and putting so much of herself into it. And my hope is that when it finally gets up and going, she'll be, she'll, she'll feel accomplished. She'll feel pleased with how
0: it goes. And are you still the one that's actually barbecuing these meats or you're not actually selling barbecue meats yet?
1: Uh, no, I'm still the one who's doing the cooking. And that's one of the issues because, um, she can't, she can't do the cooking. She doesn't know how and Why? also doesn't have the time. Um, and so the goal is to train somebody else in how to cook spare ribs or how to cook like American style barbecue chicken, to set up a system where we can just kind of teach somebody and make a manual and have somebody follow the manual.
0: It's um, my, just my, my gut, my gut feeling is, it sounds easy, but it's not, is it?
1: No, no, it's not that hard. It's, it's, it's one of those things like, one of my, um, one of my all time favorite web comics is, uh, I think his Instagram name is Adam Tots, but it's like one of those, you know how, how it's a super common trope to have like somebody tried to follow a recipe and they messed it up really bad and they say like the recipe yeah. and then the picture, yeah. like, like the goal and the reality. He has a webcomic where it's like the goal, the, the goal is this super, super perfect cake. And then it's like the mm. reality is is the exact same cake. And then it's like the next frame is the guy going like, what, I followed the directions. It wasn't that hard. <laughs> and I feel like if you follow, there's instructions. And if you follow the instructions, you'll get it.
0: Yeah, but, but you are dealing with unknown quantities because it's not like you've made your barbecue recipes for hundreds of diners over a period of years. It's like It's not like McDonald's where like, They know how to make a Big Mac now. Well, you've got a very good point, but we are
1: figuring it out, and like, Mm. it's interesting because to make barbecue sauce, there's a certain, a certain proportion that you follow to make one bottle of barbecue sauce, and then if you use that same proportion to make ten bottles of barbecue sauce, it's a little bit different. And then if why? Because the vinegar is strong. And so if you say like for one bottle of barbecue sauce you use 60 grams of vinegar but for 10 yeah. you use 600 all of a sudden you get super sour vinegar in your barbecue sauce.
0: I, I don't get it. I get I, I actually maybe I do get it because like you need enough vinegar in order to taste it. But then any more mm, So I mm, I think I, I think this might make so, sense. So so without getting into too much detail
1: I use about 65 Milliliters of vinegar to make one bottle of barbecue sauce. It's already quite a lot, but to make thirty-five bottles of barbecue sauce and have the same taste, you use about Mm. a thousand milliliters of vinegar.
0: Interesting. So the effect of vinegar is non-linear. Yeah. 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 Interesting good well i'm, I'm I've, I've said this every so time but i'm really looking forward to trying it yeah why
1: won't you come back to japan and work in my barbecue shop
0: yeah you can't afford me baby uh uh <laughs> i'd love to well i mean uh, obviously technically well a couple of things actually i think i'm now too late to ever get a working holiday visa in japan i think you've got to be 30 uh or less gotta be under uh, 30 under 30 is it you can't be 30 exactly I don't know. Well, whatever happens, I'm turning thirty-one uh, in a few months, so so that's that. So mid twenties. Um, no, instead <laughs> of mid twenties, baby. Uh, I- I've yeah, got to well, say, I mean, I've yeah. got to
1: say, like, I know the last handful of shows, the last like year of shows, you've alluded to stuff that's going on with you that's been bad. Yeah. But in the last month, uh, not only have I thoroughly, thoroughly loved your stand up clips that you put up on instagram
0: oh, um man.
1: but talking to you just talking to you you sound like you're in a better place
0: i am in a better place i am i've um well yeah i've done lots of eluding on the podcast haven't i and only recently have i kind of come to terms with what's happened but the the, the long story short is i've been um a, a, a close family member has been involved in in some domestic violence and domestic abuse and it's also related to some some alcoholism yeah and i,
1: I would like domestic abuse has kind of been the culmination of it but it's been a long cycle of
0: yeah uh, well i of, i think i think i think yeah. anyone that's, that's ever known an alcoholic knows that you know alcoholics just just it's a really really horrible illness and you need to to you know you need to tr- treat it like any other illness and have empathy but it is um It's quite a destructive thing, and and it just creates a frequency, and um, it sucks oxygen, and and you know, and you're not really aware of the effects it it, it has on the people around you, and interestingly, the people around, you know, the people around who are affected by it aren't 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 clear either. Um, I think Bobby is pretending i hope he's pretending to neck a bottle of vodka uh, which, which <laughs> yes, actually yes. um well that was i mean that was very much my experience i was just finding empty empty vodka bottles in everywhere um and it's, it's it's the whole thing's sad the whole thing's sad and and it affected me more than i realized and you know bobby and i were, were having chats as friends where he was saying things that were just oh it's just so obvious this is what you've got to do but it you know it, it changes your brain chemistry when you're um you know around people that are sick so yeah
1: yeah so, so- when you yeah. look at something from the outside, you have the sense that, like, it's very easy to see what steps to take. And it's very easy to say, mm-hmm. you've just got to take this step. You've just got to make this leap. And then once you make the leap, you've done it. And looking back, you go, oh, yeah, this was the step to take.
0: Yeah, it's, it's so obvious. And, and I think it's because there's this funny intersection between kindness and self-respect. And I think that you can kind of trick yourself into thinking you're being kind when actually you're just um, eroding your own... You know, eroding your own boundaries or, and so forth. Or enabling right?
1: somebody else.
0: And Yeah, precisely.
1: I always I think it's funny because you you taught me this analogy about stand up comedy and the idea that stand up comedy and humor works because of the leap that the audience is willing to take
0: with you. Oh uh, yeah. This is the Steve Martin Cliff analogy. Yeah. yeah.
1: And that idea of like crossing the cliff, how far it mm. takes to cross the cliff seems to me to be a very very similar analogy to the idea of that step it takes to go this far and no farther
0: yes and and also i think it, i mean my, my my therapist said this to me she said that often when people are in in abusive relationships or in an environment which is um which is bad for them right often you can rationalise the leaving. But what you can't rationalise is how on earth you're going to process the grief after or how you're going to, like you just know that leaving a really toxic job, although it seems like the right thing to do, it's really hard to imagine the, the nice job you're going to have after or leaving a relationship that's not working out for you. And it's like, even if you can rationalise, yes, I should, I should be out of here, knowing how hard it is to then deal with the mess that you're leaving behind you uh, is is often a reason for for inertia
1: that's that's an interesting thing
0: yeah. to hear you say because i know traditionally you've been kind of like skeptical of the benefits of therapy well yeah i mean i, I literally I, it, it it made it basically what it took was me having a having a breakdown in a green room um and i was i was, I was doing a show and uh a comic which i don't know very well but is very famous um overheard me talk to a friend about <laughs> michelle something wolf. i was fed up with michelle wolf of, well, of, of the I, daily sure show and the michelle wolf show fame um but mate, yeah well look she's lovely She's really sweet and she basically just gave me A couple of home truths uh, And comics are very good at doing this right Because I think we're, we're all like there's all there's something wrong with all of us um, And that was kind of a turning point Where I was like right I've really got to do something about this I can't be professionally sad as well And, and I, I, asked, I said to my therapist On the first session I am sceptical of this But I'm doing it because I don't know what else to do um, And uh, you know I can't just start another podcast because I'm feeling sad and, Not um, true And <laughs> yeah anyway well it whatever it is it works and if dude, um, dude. if casey from yeah. Ishikawa
1: summit to see will tell you that that is categorically <laughs> untrue <laughs>
0: exactly. exactly um but yeah i mean i i now i do it every week and it is like it is a little bit like a podcast and i do it on on this software that's like zoom and i do try and get a good few laughs in um and basically if anyone if anyone's listening to this this is me basically saying hey look we've had to go to a less regular schedule and things have been a bit um bit sloppy a lot of it's down to the fact that i didn't really know what i was doing with myself um and now i i I do genuinely feel like i've got a, a little bit of clarity and dare i say i've felt feelings of happiness uh in the past few weeks which i've uh genuinely not felt in the past six months and no I'm, I'm sure people listening to this have had feelings like this. Where I, I genuinely thought, and I know, this, I know this sounds really arrogant and conceited and pathetic, but I thought that mental health was the kind of thing which is like you can outsmart it, right? It's like, well, if, if only you're clever enough, you can just persuade your brain to think differently. And that is categorically untrue. Uh, and it's uh, it's and it's sad to experience, right? Your own brain telling you to like think a certain thing, and your brain not letting you, or your body. Uh, reacting viscerally to its surroundings and you knowing that's irrational and then not being able to override it all that stuff anyway um look seeing a therapist has, has, has helped and if anyone is listening to this and was like me thinking th- th- therapy's for idiots to share their stupid feelings with unqualified losers wrong it's for idiots like me to share their stupid feelings with qualified smart people and and I'll put a link in the um, I, I use better help And I know they've had loads of scandals and stuff But like, I, I stumbled across a good therapist um, So I'll, I'll put a link in the, the bio If anyone wants uh, that I'm sure there's something where like you get a free session Or something, I'll find out Find out if we can if we can both benefit from our mutual sadness, listeners. Anyway, look, <laughs> um, that's that's, um, that's. I think that's, it feels quite good to say this. I've really, I've not uh, not many people have really known. And obviously, I'm not sharing all the details with you lot. I can't, can't trust can't, can't trust you all. But um, hey, thanks for sticking with Brian. us, Brian. <laughs> yeah, bloody bread, Brian. Brian, Brian can't wait. But to But speaking juiciness. of listeners
1: who we can trust, uh, we'd like to say thank you to anybody who's ever financially express their appreciation oh, yeah. for our show
0: on so buymeacoffee.com you can give a one-off donation if you enjoy the show or you can uh subscribe and you can do what some people do which is subscribe then cancel we don't judge you that hard uh when you get <laughs> access to the bonus
1: yeah speaking of which uh in terms of our coffees we've got heaven chai who uh joined as a member and then canceled and then when we called them out in the show last time it sent us a message saying didn't expect to be called out for cancelling so quickly and then joined again. <laughs> yeah. And then cancelled again. Did he? <laughs> I believe. <laughs> that's I, funny. Based on, on the screenshot that you sent me, I think so. But that's fine. That's fine. Because that means they gave us $10. And $10, I mean, that, that's like 3.3 bottles of barbecue sauce.
0: Yeah. Or it's uh, 20 minutes of therapy. So, so uh, <laughs> uh, but well, I mean, basically, but if you, if you do the membership thing, you get a link to a private podcast feed where we put all of the extras. This week's extras are good because we've just, re- we've recorded them and, uh, you know, we often say this, but sometimes the extras are better than the main episode. Also, Bobby, uh, you can show appreciation by just saying something nice, can't you? And it doesn't have to be accompanied by money.
1: Yeah, that's true. Uh, to wit, we got an email from Luke Rolls. Luke, Luke Rolls. Luke, you do. Uh, you rock Luke and said, you roll.
0: He, he, that's right. He said, I just wanted to say, I'm really enjoying listening to Japan by River Cruise podcast. Uh, I like the fact that he sp- specifically mentioned podcast there, um, separating it from all of our other oeuvre. Uh Hope you and Bobby continue to make it. I look forward to seeing your stand-up when it becomes available. Thanks. Thanks. Uh, I've just started... I've just started putting some reels on my Instagram, Ollie Horn Comedy, if you want to check that out. Uh, Luke, um, with thanks for what you're doing and feedback that your work translates a super funny and and listening treat at this end. All the best, Luke. Luke, these things genuinely mean more than you you can imagine. So thanks for taking the time to um, email that. A, I us. mean, it's really common to say
1: that, like, you get 99 positive messages and one negative one, and that one negative one sticks out. Luke, we would like you to know that we are not <laughs> popular enough to get any negative messages. And this <laughs> and this one, it really sticks out.
0: That's great. <laughs> right, Bobby, let's jump into the interview we did with Joe as we welcome him to the
1: Captain's, Captain's Table. table.
0: Ahoy! Joe, welcome to the captain's table. Happy to be here. Let's do it. All right.
1: Jumping right in. Joe, you've co-authored a book called Emergent Tokyo, Designing the Spontaneous City, uh, in which you talk about how flexible microspaces are critical to the vitality of the city. Uh, Now, I hate to be critical myself, but I've been flexibly crammed into some of the microspaces on the Yamanote line, and I'd say the vibe is less vitality and more kill me, please. Uh, So maybe it would be better (laughs) if you walked us through what you mean by that sentiment.
2: So in Tokyo, there are a few types of buildings or or neighborhood configurations and things like that, that produce what I call micro spaces, these small spaces that can be used for a lot of different things. Um, One obvious example is houses, unlike in most American cities in Japan, if you have a two-story row house in a residential neighborhood, by right, you can put pretty much whatever thing you want in the bottom floor. You could put in a little bar, a little restaurant, a little workshop, a boutique. And you could rent that out to someone to someone else. Some, you know, you're maybe a retiree and you miss having liveliness around you. And so you, you rent out your bottom floor to some young kid who wants to start a, a coffee shop uh that's that's a type of microspace another are yokocho alleyways uh for those who've never been to japan think of like these like kind of narrow dingy alleyways that grew out of the black markets after world war ii and then they started having tons of little bars and restaurants over time and so that that would um those are also micro spaces that that are kind of open to the public you can walk in and have a have a bite to eat have a drink
1: so um, let me let me ask right here my general impression yeah. as an american i've been in japan for 16 years now but but still something that blows me away is is my general sense that the number of restaurants that are s- seemingly sustainable in
0: japan is huge compared yes. to america Massive difference, and just to be clear, what we mean by restaurants, because I think the concept of a restaurant is different. Uh, like when I, you know, yeah. ask ask a British person or American what they mean by restaurant, they're thinking like they're imagining a hundred covers. TGI yeah, Fridays, I'm thinking re- or, yeah, yeah. When I'm thinking restaurant, I'm thinking you know the guy that was um, that that was doing his shop in Daimyo and can't have had more than six seats oh, no, selling exactly. steak and rice. Yeah,
2: and there there were so many barriers we put to creating we put up to be creating restaurants in the states and and often in the uk too i mean this is this is less about what people want to do because people love starting little mom and pop restaurants coffee shops things like that and more about what we make it possible or reasonable for them to do so tokyo has over 10 times as many bars and restaurants as new york city it's the i would say the the city with the most restaurants anywhere in the world and a huge share of those are just these tiny little operations because give you give you an example liquor licenses you know one of the ways that restaurants make money is by serving booze and how much does it cost to get a liquor license in your city uh in tokyo it can be like a I think like a hundred bucks in a form and wait a couple weeks, something easy like that in America. It can be as much as $500,000 for a liquor license and, Whoa. and over a year of permit wrangling and things like that. Uh, and this is kind of unsexy stuff, you know, oh, municipal regulations. That's what I tune into a comedy podcast for. But it actually, like, makes a giant difference mm. for what you can do in a city, what sort of things you can experiment with. Uh, can you just kind of open a shoebox devoted to your personal beloved niche interest uh, and see who shows up? Maybe have a couple regulars that you have drinks with. Or do you have to plan out this kind of Applebee's style, it makes sense on the spreadsheet uh, thing yeah. to open a restaurant?
1: Yeah, and when you so, say well, niche, niche interest, it could be anything from like tacos to anime songs to aus- yeah. Austrian bread to Australian coffee to anything.
0: Well, yeah, yeah, I mean, this this guy that I was talking about, the guy that opened the steak place, he went to Australia once, uh, loved it, opened up a little uh, wine bar called Osru, and he literally just had one pan, (laughs) which he would cook steak on. And that was the food. Yeah. Uh, but the thing is, it was sustainable. he also had another job. I think he was a surf instructor um, and like he just and like but it yeah. was viable for him to only open this six hours at night. And this goes back to exactly what you were saying that, like, he isn't incentivized to make his operations bigger yeah. because he doesn't have those kind of overheads. And it's not or, just or about the liquor license.
2: Yeah, exactly. He's, he's, he's not trying to open it weird hours. This is actually something that. They studied in Shimokitazawa, which, for those of you who've never heard of it, it's kind of like a—that's where good let's heavens is—a a, a genteel hipster district, like the more um, yeah. you know, the more fancy pants parts of Brooklyn.
0: I think lots of our listeners will know it because we, Bobby and I, used to perform a lot of comedy there.
2: Oh, great! Yeah, and yeah. so Shimokitazawa—they went around and they measured what percentage of the businesses in Shimokitazawa keep weird hours that don't make any sense from just a maximize your customers maximize your profit perspective and it was actually like a huge percentage it was like 30 40 percent yeah uh especially the sm- small businesses and that tells you that people are f- are feeling some freedom to like try things and <laughs> let it fit into the other aspects of their life and what they're about that they That's- they can yeah. Oh, yeah, Bobby. You that's, were at your barbecue restaurant? I mean, it's. Yeah. Well, I was
1: gonna say that's great because if you ran that same statistical analysis in America, that would tell you which restaurants are mafia. <laughs> yeah,
2: exactly. No, <laughs> well, in, in DC, yeah, there are these um, these weird um, suit shops uh, in a rich area of town that no one ever buys suits there. The suits are like 1980s, uh, like 1980s soap opera suits. And they are perpetually have a, you know, going out of business sale sign and they've been there 30 years with that sign. And it's, yeah, and it's, it's, you just kind of know. Yeah. Organized crime. That, that suit is going
1: to have three kilos of cocaine in the pocket.
2: (laughs) No, but, but for both, for both business runners and, and also customers too, I think it comes down to like finding your happiness, finding your true self, your authentic self in the city how do people find what feels authentic and right and true to them in the city and and having a wide variety of niche businesses for the people who run them for the people who visit them that ends up being really meaningful it makes a city feel like a thing that you can connect with and be a part of a community uh versus just kind of a, a series of consumer interactions.
0: in the extras we spoke about the robot cafe in tokyo which is an example of the city responding to perceived demand and what we're talking about here is that there's there's kind of a generation or there's a a layer of supply in japanese cities that is there not simply to respond to consumer demand but because Some there's a there's a low enough barrier to entry, yeah. um, and there's there, there's not as much of a, of an imperative to to recoup as many costs in, as, as 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 there is in other countries that people can just do fun things and see if it sticks right. I think that's you yeah. know generally where where this conversation is going. So
2: there's actually there's a neighborhood of of Tokyo that I find absolutely fascinating uh, that gr- grew through exactly that that mechanism. Uh, which is Otome Road in Ikebukuro and it's it's a whole district of Tokyo that's largely devoted to young women who love homoerotic fan fiction. Like yeah, I I was going to say
1: I know the phrase otome from otome game.
2: Yeah, like maiden road literally in English, maiden road. And it's it's people who love say, you know, Harry Potter and Draco Malfoy getting together or or Iron Man and Captain America. That's actually a pairing they call Starks and Stripes uh, or, or Kirk and Spock <laughs> is the classic one uh, but you you have a whole district of the city uh, devoted to this kind of I'm sorry we're gonna have uh, to take fiction. like a
1: five minute break because Brian just heard Kirk and Spock and he's gonna need some time in the bathroom
0: <laughs>
2: I, I mean well if you if you go to Otome Road, you can you can
0: get some uh, <laughs> scintillating reading material. And I guess the regard. point is that, like these subcultures in other countries, they obviously would exist online or maybe would yeah. exist in like some pop-up market store. Yes, that's but exactly you can...
2: my that's literally the exact phrase I've used. just like it's on the internet. It's at the convention twice a year. Like that fan fiction so popular in America, in China, in Europe. And only in Tokyo do you feel it like taking on physical form. And how that happened was, a bookstore in in Ikebukuro, they experimented with like one bookshelf for this this style of so like BL boys' love, um, like light novels and fan fiction, and then it went from it was so successful that it went from one bookstore, sorry, one bookstore's one shelf to a whole bookstore, and then two, and then three. And then businesses aimed at the same demographic, you know, uh, cutesy butler cafes or cosplay supply emporiums uh, or all all sorts of uh, or um, boy band kind of idol group uh, performance stages. Yeah. Uh, And you you can there there's a there's actually there's a great there's a role play cafe called the, the Boys Love Academy there where the idea of this role playing cafe is that uh you are the only female exchange student at this all boys prep school and you and the the waiters are like playing all the types you know the lovable jock the brooding goth boy and they're all secretly in love with each other and you can uh pay cash uh at to to create storylines that they will act out as they serve you tea and coffee and things like that and that's just that's just an idea someone had, and
0: and they. I was interviewing. Them <laughs> That's uh, an idea that they... someone had. That. In other countries, there would be incentives to stop. That they have the idea and they enjoy that idea. But but what we're going to talk about on this podcast yeah. is that there are specific legal technicalities that mean that Japan not only allows this but yeah encourages it.
2: Yeah, exactly. It's it's everything from like legal, regulatory, history, culture, public policy, like the ikebukuro as a place where there used to be a black market post-world war ii that then when they shut down the black markets got divided up into a lot of micro spaces or the fact that a bunch of uh commuter train lines out to -to well-to-do suburbs uh that go to girls' schools in the area had like so many like high school girls with spending money going through ikebukuro uh or the Ease, easy regulations around not only small business but uh, honestly intellectual property like you that you can sell uh, fan fiction with uh, with famous characters. like you you go into the big f- homoerotic fan fiction bookstores in in on Maiden Road and it's not only like Harry Draco. it's like you have the whole Harry Potter section and it'll be sorted by ba- by whether harry or draco is the dominant one and that's like a different shelf and like yeah. it and they're not worried about you know Warner Brothers or Marvel or whoever coming in and shutting them down the the thing that actually helped coming into this as someone who's a national security analyst rather than you know a PhD academic in Tokyo studies or anything like that is you know when you're an academic you're looking at this very narrow slice of of a, a big chaotic complex picture like you're looking at you know you're doing your whole phd thesis on on one bookstore or or one neighborhood and as an intelligence analyst a national security analyst our whole thing is just combine data insights from a, a bunch of different places to try and build something new and that actually really helped for understanding Tokyo because you got to look at everything. You got to look at history, culture, public policy, economics. Um, you got to look at the big flashy stuff and the granular stuff too. And that actually ended up uh,
0: being a big theme of the book. So we've we've had a chat kind of from the the supply side, right? Yeah. That there's just various legal and cultural reasons why the barrier to entry is lower and the fact that that, you know that that it can sustain as an aside by the way does that mean that churn is higher like is it more likely that japanese restaurants and small businesses fail is that why you know new ones keep popping up or
2: i mean they fail a ton in america too like i think it's some like 80 90 of restaurants and new restaurants in america close within five years yeah Uh,
1: i think it's, it's three years
2: yeah it, it's like going into journalism or stand-up comedy or academia basically no matter how bad the odds get it will be someone's dream uh and and they'll have the rose-colored uh picture of that dream and so the people will keep trying it even if there's Uh, not really a pot of gold at the end of that rainbow, realistically.
0: On that note, tickets for my Edinburgh fringe
1: show are on sale. I Uh, was going to say (laughs) that. I was... Oh, you beat me (laughs) to it. It's less mean (laughs) if you say it yourself.
0: Yeah, sure. So, anyway, moving on from kind of the supply side, right? And I think, you know, we, we probably... I'd love to talk to Bobby specifically about like the barriers that he's faced setting up his restaurant or not. But before we do that, let's let's quickly jump to the like the demand side and people's experience of of cities. So what what why does Tokyo feel different? So to me, Tokyo feels different because
2: it has a wider emotional color palette. Than a lot of other cities and there are concrete reasons for that i mean that's a fluffy phrase but what i mean by that is tokyo opens up spaces where you can experience different kinds of feelings different kinds of communities and belonging different kinds of experiences uh, that a lot of other cities just don't make it that possible to do and and when you have enough of that you know, it, it's it hits a critical mass. Um, give give you an example. You walk down Yasukuni Street, the famous street in Shinjuku. Everyone who's never been to Tokyo, you've seen it in movies. It's the the neon up the outside of the buildings. I mean, we call it neon, but it's it's all LED these days. But mm-hmm. you, you know what I'm talking about. You know, the iconic neon skyline of Tokyo, yeah. and up those buildings, every single floor is little businesses and they they might be uh food they might be drink they might be carousing they might be some niche subculture thing uh they might be part of the sex and intimacy economy who knows but they're there are they are someone's dream someone's yearning in those bi- up in the up in those uh, those uh buildings and in america you go above the first second floor and for various reasons, it's either offices or residences. Like you don't have stuff that's open to the public up there, and that just gives more space for more possibilities. That you can find the thing that really resonates with you. You can find a different side of yourself. Um, you you can see the the multiple versions of yourself in the city as you as you try all these different places and experiences.
0: Let's um let's move the discussion on something that occurred to me while I spent some time in France, uh specifically Paris last month. Um, mm. is Paris is really interesting because it has fairly high density living compared to to other major world cities. You know, it's most of the city is like six-story high buildings absolutely full of apartments and they all have good bakeries underneath them. Right? And it, like it, it occurred to me that like it, these residents are super incentivized to make sure that they've got really good stuff underneath them, and that's different to how a lot of town planning in the UK works, which is you take you take like a ten minute walk to get to a little hub, a little high street yeah. where there is all your conveniences, or the, which just the U.S., just where like the, the, the
1: residential areas are, especially in the suburbs, completely divorced from the commerce centers. Yeah.
0: Exactly. And yeah. in your book, you talk about how one of the, most, uh, one of the, the biggest levers to make sure that you've, you've got good, good amenities where you live is to be the landlord of the commercial space yourself. And that's yeah. obviously very common in, in, in Japan. So can you talk a bit about how the, the incentives of people who are renting commercial property when they're not purely financial can change the way a city feels?
2: Yeah, it's I, I think it's not even just being your own landlord, though that's definitely one way of doing it. It's maybe you inherited your parents' old row house and you live in Kyushu and you're just kind of happy to have someone doing something with it, or maybe you're kind of the the pillar of the local community and you own twenty properties, but you're you're wedded to the community. Um it's really they're all different strange landlord stories, uh, but just having it be something other than dollars and cents on the spreadsheet. It makes all the difference in the world. I and mean, that's that's true of um, a lot of these like Yokocho alleyways uh, too, that that like some of them they put their land into a trust or a non nonprofit or something like that, or they have some management model uh, to, to keep decision-making about who goes in and who comes out being something other than just what's the maximum for profit. And in in New York, um, I've been living in New York uh, the past year because uh, my, my wife was working with the United Nations. And in New York,
1: Humble the, the really cool
2: little businesses are... <laughs> Uh, they have some story often of of what their relationship with their landlord is. It's there's
0: um, <laughs> sorry, just, for, for Bobby just made me laugh by suggesting another reason that you're a spy is your wife works for the UN. Just give it up. Or <laughs> we'll come up with a better cover story. I, I I would be the
2: worst spy in the world. Like anyone that's who what the knows best spy in the world, world would
1: say.
2: Yeah, hiding in plain in li- sight. In listening to this, hiding is like, in yeah, plain Joe would, sight, would, Joe be executed instantly as a spy like i i would be the 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 one Hmm. out you know out in the the courtyard for the summary execution where they're you know they're they're saying you know american devils you know we're not mad we're just disappointed you're not sending your best no
1: no 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 no, no. you've got to craft your spy identity hi what's your american name uh joe mc reynolds (laughs)
0: were you just looking at a mcdonald's McDonald's when you said that sir no what's your middle name burger (laughs) are you gonna say king no
2: (laughs) it's it is a very mclovin name i know but uh (laughs) i promise you my real name
0: um all right so sorry as you were saying
2: no yeah just like and that's something i mean you don't want to be the kind of uh, the asshole sticking your nose uh, into everyone's business, asking, "Hey, what's your relationship with your landlord?" You know, when you walk around a city, but combative. Um, yeah, but in but in in New York, like I talking to small businesses in New York, I found that like the the little charming bookstore or the the mom and pop Ukrainian restaurant that's been there fifty years, uh, you. You find that they have some special accommodation they're mm. not just a line on a spreadsheet and that changes the texture and the feeling of the city
0: so how can we protect that because what you're essentially saying is there's a certain strata of businesses which yeah. according to normal market conditions should not be there so yeah. like in order to protect this presumably we've got to like not let normal market conditions function so how can other cities around the world learn from this model and I mean while it 's easy to say cut red tape, like what specifically if a city wanted to have the vibrancy of tokyo and I do think it 's a laudable yeah. aim what 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 kind of what are the easy wins that they could do
2: um, Well, there are easy wins in terms of if you have all the power in the world sure it 's easy, but politically i mean like in the in the united states if if everyone is so Obsessed with their property values. And so the idea of your neighbor opening a little bar in the, the house next to you, you know, that's like Guernica got like for for us. Yeah, it's you would be in years of, of knockdown drag out fights to keep it from happening. And in Tokyo, it's just okay, my neighbor's opening a bar, I'll talk to them about, you know, keeping quiet after certain hours, and we'll figure it out. And I think if you have that spirit of, we'll figure it out, uh, a a lot of things uh, become possible that otherwise are just, it's this (laughs) combative
0: zero basically what you're saying is, it's not possible around the rest of the world because foreigners cause meiwaku. Only possible in Japan.
2: (laughs) In Japan, I mean, there's so much meiwaku too. It's just they they kind of, because zoning got kicked up to the national level, you don't have the same power uh, at the local level to block things. People kind of have to work it out. but no, like there's this amazing music space I love in uh, in Azabu Juban. Uh, it's a it's a classical piano space. It's very genteel and it's free and and um, they do free shows for children. And their neighbor calls the cops on them like every week. They actually have like a, a wall of photos of every time, the police show up. Uh, <laughs> it's, just, it's kind of a badge of honor. Like so that. no, like, like that goes back to the whole thing. I think we talked about in the extras of you know people have this imagination, of, uh, this imaginary view of Japan as this harmonious place where people, everyone just gets along in a way that's uniquely Japanese. And no, people piss each other off in Japan. Yeah. People have friction with each other in Japan. It's the structure allows for it to be resolved differently and i think that's that's really the key but bottom line is just expand what people can do with their own houses i mean you want to create flexible micro spaces let people do what they want in the bottom floor of their house maybe a bar is a bridge too far for the average american you know suburban community but let people sell you know sell food out of out of their house homemade food if 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 a mom and pop operation selling homemade bento boxes if if people are getting sick from it no one's gonna buy the bento boxes i mean even japan's food regulations that that thing is japan's food and restaurant regulations are actually among the most lax in the developed world we think of japan as this very clean place and anyone who's tried to find soap in like a japanese train bathroom knows that like japan is not (laughs) actually uh this this miraculously clean country
0: Sure. Well, let's let's stop there and let's ask Bobby the question. Bobby, what food do you cook from your home that could make me sick? All of it. And why doesn't it? <laughs> Is it because of regulation telling you not to or because you can? Are you
1: asking me what regulations there were that were barriers for me to start my business?
0: Yeah, in a, in a kind of a silly, funny way, yeah. Okay,
1: am I close enough to my mic? Should I get a little bit...
0: Should I... Should, yeah. Can you hear me? Is this okay? Yeah, I can hear you, yeah. Oh, hold on. None. <laughs> really?
1: Basically I mean, none. Now you've made your mic non sanitary yeah. No, uh, no. Uh, there, there are some, but it's it's the bare minimum. And um, yeah, it, it's it's incredibly easy. I remember actually, like my second year in Japan, I got my ano uh, shokuhinseisakenisha shikaku, which is your like food hygienic, your your food management hygiene license. It's very easy to get. You attend a seminar and you pay some money and you get it. And then if you're going to be selling food somewhere, they come out, like somebody comes out to check to see you're following all the regulations. But the regulations are basically like you have a sink.
0: <laughs> you have a sink yeah. and you're not allowed to piss in it. <laughs> but but yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're
1: operating like a standard restaurant, you have to have a separate sink for washing dishes and washing hands. But like the, the regulations are, are so reasonable. They're so reasonable that it feels like there's no barrier.
0: Yeah, so like your barbecue sauce, right? When you're bottling it and putting it in your glass bottles, do they check that you've sterilized it, for example? So right now,
1: the stuff that we're making for our products that we're selling, there are no required permissions. And it's because we're not cooking anything raw. It's because basically what we're doing is recombining uh, already produced products. So like our barbecue sauce is made of a blend of... Of, of basically like, like it's made from ketchup and vinegar and uh, liquid smoke and brown sugar is made of all of these things that are already approved so that our process of combining them doesn't require any extra per- any extra permissions you could basically right. you don't have to have a restaurant kitchen or a commercial kitchen you could produce it in your own kitchen and this is something that I like confirmed three times with the local uh, Health and Hygiene Regulatory <laughs> Commission because I was like, I, I can't believe that, it's, that yeah. it's this easy.
0: They must have wondered why you kept calling. Sir, what do, what, what, how are you planning to stir this sauce, well, please? Why, why do you like, keep asking these questions? As a TV
1: reporter, I can't tell you how many times I've gone to some, some report about somebody who's just operating a home business where they're selling bentos out of their home kitchen or they're selling uh, some sort of uh, kakohin, uh, some sort of like processed food that they package and and build in a slightly reformed home kitchen. And the regulations for a commercial kitchen are things like, you know, you have to have a door, you have to have a washable floor, you have to have a ceiling. It's like so bare bones that pretty much if you have a walled in space, you could accomplish it.
2: Honestly, like there's there's a famous ramen restaurant in Tokyo, Ramen Jiro, where their venting solution is, you know, because ramen is very hot and, and sweaty. And their venting solution is basically they just like punched a hole in the wall with a sledgehammer <laughs> and, and, it, and it works. And they yeah. do it. And, and, and the health and safety inspections on restaurants in Tokyo are like every five to seven years. The sort of thing that in an American city would just never fly. And yet, In Tokyo it it works and it it, I think we can if we trust people more that's really the thing right yeah it's about how much do you trust a stranger with your with your safety and trust gets repaid on a communal level if you put it in
1: but at the same time when there's a failure in protecting that safety the consequences are dire i like i remember like there was an incident when i was here in like 2007 where somebody ate bad yuke, which is uh what's it's like raw raw meat um it's like a tartare it's basically like a korean tartare and somebody ate bad yuke, and then like for like five years it was forbidden to sell yuke anywhere in japan
2: that's classic Japanese reactive policy like a lot a lot of my friends they visit Tokyo for the first time and they just assume that there are no trash cans in public because of some Japanese cultural thing and it's like oh no it was the the sarin gas attack and that you know they they hid the the uh, the weapons in trash cans and so the reactive policy was remove all the trash cans
1: yeah yeah. so speaking of some Japanese cultural thing we've talked about this idea that there are all these niche businesses that can thrive in Japan because of yeah. kind of like the zoning and land use policies. But what what would you say to the idea that there's also something essentially cultural about Japanese people identifying a certain thing that they're passionate about and perfecting it? And
0: running with it and making it bigger than it needs to be.
2: Yeah, they kind of... Um uh, let's let's call that a combo of like otaku culture, shokunin culture, shokunin culture, um, yeah, bukatsu culture. Shokunin being um,
1: cr- uh, craftsman and bukatsu being yeah. uh, yep. when you come all over someone's face. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'm just gonna move right on. We just, really? I on just, on just show. I just
1: derailed the entire show, didn't I?
2: Yeah, did not see that one coming. Um, <laughs>
1: That's what she said. <laughs> I can't, I can't take you anywhere
2: um, <laughs> No, but like, it, it, people people put out a number of like all right we're gonna take a moment we're gonna, we're gonna, take, a moment we're gonna take a moment and we're gonna we're
1: gonna, we're gonna wonder after now, that bukake like, lead off what you were gonna say people put out
2: listening to this know that I'm like I have the filthiest sense of humor but then I'm like desperately trying to be a professional human being here and so i'll give uh, up the the tables have Um, (laughs) (laughs) no no but like there there people toss out a lot of cultural explanations for that that kind of phenomena like another one i hear a lot is like in the 60s and 70s that japanese uh corporations Uh, decided that if they had their salary men have hobbies, they would be more fulfilled and more productive workers. Like that's kind of a thing that I don't know if that's an urban legend or actually true, but I've heard from like management consultants. And and so you you hear a lot of these cultural explanations and, and I'm sure there is, you know, something to each of them. But we have amazing craftsmen in other countries. We have people who are really into a specific, you know, niche thing in america i mean we t- we talked about the uh the homoerotic fan fiction enthusiasts and you know those are you know they these things exist around the world too it's just a question of who gets to actually take on physical space and and maybe i'm wrong maybe if we changed all the zoning and everything in america and allowed these these niche businesses it wouldn't take off in the same way but i think it might you know it might the texture the nuances might be different but I really do think we are less different. Uh, we, you know, the outside world are less different than Japan in a lot of respects yeah. than we, we let on. It's kind of the material stuff that yeah. that, that, um, that produces a different result. Um, I'm not discounting the role of culture, but I, I just, I think we tend to overstate it because it, it's a just-so story. You know, we can't, you can't falsify a story about culture. and And, and so I think it's, if we want to be curious, if we want to go deeper, we kind of have to hear out the cultural story but kind of set it aside and and start looking at, at the, the city as this concrete thing and, and how it works.
1: Mm. Yeah, I hear what you're saying and I'm also of the mind that I don't want to blanket attribute things to cultural stereotypes. But at the same time, I yeah. see what's going on in the American zeitgeist and I want to say like, Good luck with your homoerotic fanfiction zoning in the current climate.